Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 82nd episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that doesn't need to discount itself on Groupon quite yet. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face to Face Games. FaceToFaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed pricing, with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face to Face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building a deck or stockpiling your spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host tonight is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good afternoon, James. Glad to be here. Looking forward to a excellent 80-second episode. At least I hope it's excellent. Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. I'm worried that people thought that by 82nd episode, you meant that we were going to actually be fast for once and get the whole thing done in 80 seconds. But no, it's our 82nd episode. No concerns there. (laughs) I don't think so. Okay. So uh, our show this week, we have four parts. Uh, Segment one, our top movers. Um, We are going to look at the list of cards that have moved the most in price recently. This is a long obnoxious list this week segment two is our cards to watch uh cards james and i think are going to increase in price segment three is our metagame we can review we will touch on grand prix denver last weekend and finally segment four our topic of the week we got a little bit of a grab bag we're going to discuss a little bit of mtgo maybe some hour of devastation probably some hascon if that if we get to that uh so all right let's uh let's jump in there at the start of segment one our top movers our first card of the week is vadi il dal from time spiral um we're looking at the foil copies looked like they moved from 10 to 20 uh, a little bit of a double up here vadi il dal is uh is time shifted from tempest or yeah time shifted from tempest it's a four mana three three um he taps to reduce a power or toughness into one um it's really not really remarkable. I mean, he's a human warrior. He doesn't fit into either of the any of the new precons, really. Um, so as far as I can tell, this was just a very low supply, and somebody must have just bought the last one or two. No, 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 no. This is Hepatra EDH, because uh, once you give something one toughness, any minus one, minus one counter in that deck kills it. Uh, that is such a stretch. <laughs> no, no, no. That's solid. People that have been testing Hepatra and EDH say it's it totally makes the deck. Um, for sure, for sure, um, because it's just tap, kill a thing, and, and kills pretty much anything, because the the it even kills things that are can regenerate or are indestructible and so forth, because you can give a god, for instance, that's indestructible by nature, toughness of one, and then minus one, minus one, and you kill it stone dead. Uh, I'm, I mean, okay, so I believe that that's where it comes from. I'm not convinced. I mean, a creature that was just tap to kill target creature is not even really that great in EDH at four mana, I don't think. Like, that doesn't seem like it does enough. But whatever. If that's what it is, that's what it is. So that makes sense, I suppose. I mean, people are talking about the new cat as playable, and that thing only kills one creature once. The white one? you mean, Or the the exiles? Yeah, but I mean, I guess, like, you can blink that, which gives you a couple extra triggers. I don't know. I suppose that's true. Oh, well. Uh, Okay, what do you got next for us? 
All right, so next on the list, we got Temple Bell Foils from M14, doubling up from $6 to $12. This is a group hug type card in Commander where uh, people draw all sorts of cards, and uh, it's, it hasn't actually been that hard to target uh, relevant rare and mythic foils from M14, M15, and Origins. Um, all, all of those sets have coughed up um, some profitable foils lately. Yeah, it looks like there might be a little bit of uh, a little bit of farming going on. People just kind of swinging through and grabbing anything that looks interesting in there, which I think we're going to hit on a couple more times today as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a good card. It's essentially a, a better Howling Mine, really. Um, it's easier to to abuse it, and you don't have to give your opponents the cards if you find yourself in a position where that's not what you want to do. Yeah, three casting cost artifact, tap it, each player draws a card. So uh, if you can tap and untap it a bunch of times and then make it bad for people to be drawing, it's going to show, it shows up in like 5,500 decks on EDH.rec. Um, the top deck, of course, is Nekasar, which is still a relatively popular commander. Um, but there's, you know, a smattering of appearances and eight or ten other commander decks. Yeah. Uh, next on our list is Enduring Renewal. This is another Time Spiral card. Looks like the Foils jumped again a double up from 7 to 14. Originally from Ice Age, Time Shifted again. It was a 4-mana enchantment, a very odd card. Um, I'm not going to read the Oracle text. Uh, you can go back and take a look at it. But it basically changes the way creatures enter and exit your graveyard. Uh, again, not one that I'm entirely, this might be connected to the recent commander buyout, like, you know, commander result, but not in any clear way that I see. I mean, it's not a tribal card at all. It just gives you a little bit more access to your creatures, basically. Um, do you have any additional insight into this one, James? So let's go through this, um, cause I don't off the top of my head. You play with your hand revealed, not necessarily doesn't give you any benefit there if you would draw a card instead you reveal the top card of your library instead if it's a creature card you put it into your graveyard otherwise you draw a card um whenever creatures put into your graveyard from play return it to your hand so basically anytime you would draw uh, a creature uh, after this is in play it's going into your graveyard um and then if a creature is put into your graveyard from play you return to your hand so the creatures you already have in play never die and the creatures that you draw always go to the graveyard. Hmm. I mean, Marcel the Pretender likes this card, I guess, but it's not in the right color set. So yeah. I, I'm just going to go with Time Spiral Foils are actually relatively rare. Yeah. Um, low supply, as far as I can tell. Yeah, that works for me. I think that that's reasonable. It just says the creatures you have are the only creatures you have. They just keep coming back, but you don't get any new ones, essentially. Been if anybody else has a better idea, feel free to let us know. Yeah. Um, okay, what's next? Long Tusk Cub Foils from Kaladesh, moving from $2 to $4. That's a foil uncommon in standard. Steer well clear of that, even with rotation coming. It doesn't matter. Um, you're never going to make any money on this card. Uh, if the foils go to 6 bucks and you're trying to ship a playset, maybe you eke out 3 or $4, but you should just be looking elsewhere. Yeah, agreed. Uh, next up is Sigil Tracer from Morning Tide. Uh, looks like copies have just about doubled up. Non-foils, by the way, from three to six. Uh, this is another wizard from the wizard. Uh, didn't get reprinted in the wizard deck, so we're seeing a lot of it. Um, specifically, it you can tap two untapped wizards you control to copy copy an instant or sorcery. So pretty useful. That's pretty a useful fork wizard. on a stick. Yeah. 
This is, this, is a good, this is a good card because it's not even that this taps and you tap two untapped wizards. It's pay two, tap two untapped wizards you control. So not only is it repeatable, but this can be <clears> one of the two wizards. So this plus your commander equals fork as many times as, as you want. And if you're doing silly things like par- with Paradox Engine or something else where when creatures come into play, um, you get to untap all your permanents, then you can do all sorts of wacky shit with wizard tokens, right? So th- this card looks like an auto-include in the wizard deck. Um, makes sense that it would be making a move. It's only ever seen a single printing in Morning Tide. So both foils and non-foils have probably made some people some money and are probably decent holds because if it didn't show up in the commander product, then that's probably pretty safe. Yeah, this is... Uh, I will tell you that the demand here is pretty real. I've been selling through uh, foreign language copies at um, about five or six bucks pretty regularly for the last week or so. So uh, definitely real people in on this. Did you see the uh, the survey that I ran on Twitter yesterday where I asked whether people run foreign cards in their EDH decks, which is something that people have continuously told us that does not happen, and 50% of people said that they did? Yeah, yeah that's a tough one. You know, it, we've got a bit of a vocal minority going here because I play some cards, foreign cards in my EDH deck, and clearly there are other people that do as well. But at the same time, I think there's a pretty wide swath of people who don't bother Um playing reserve playing foreign language cards but you only need a small percentage of people to like them however i will say i bet i'm selling through these slower than somebody selling english copies also amusingly i think i've had three orders this week um from people who either got the card or immediately after ordering it messaged me and said i didn't want japanese i bought this on accident can i return it so apparently being casual also means you can't read I had one guy leave me a one-star review because, and his comment was, "I didn't realize this is Japanese when I bought it." Wow, that's super yeah. kind of them. <laughs> so here's the reason Good I ran out that. there. Here's the reason I ran that survey. So let me break down for you why I ran that survey. Um, let's say there's 20 million Magic players, right? Can we say that, say, five percent of them at least are dedicated EDH players? So like a million players. Sure. All right. And of that million, can we suggest that maybe 20% of them would be engaged enough with their EDH uh, decks that they might also be interested in foreign cards in a similar fashion to 50% of the people that follow me and probably exhibit some form of selection bias towards like blinging out their decks? Yeah, I think that's fine. And I think that, you know, you can kind of understand that that demand can also not just be people that are you know, trying to add a lot of flair to their deck and also just realize that sometimes the Japanese copies are cheaper and they're okay with that. They're they're knowledgeable players, so the language change doesn't harm them. Right. And so it's probably fair to say that it's not just any old language, like the same kind of like, um, you know, bias towards Japanese, Korean, and Russian copies probably still applies with the occasional German copy thrown in there. And it's the English language players we're talking about. So if there was 200,000 total worldwide, could be that in Japan, that means that Japanese players uh, are are leaning more towards, uh, you know, English co- copies to bling out their deck. But in reality, EDH is much more popular in North America than almost anywhere else. So let's say that there's still maybe 100,000 people strong as the market for foreign cards for EDH. Is that enough demand for you that if you are looking at a pile of, say, palancrons that might go from 20 to 40 on the next spike and you saw 10 Japanese copies for 10 bucks a piece. Would you be interested in picking those up? 
Yeah, probably. I mean, I've found through personal sales at this point that while Japanese copies don't sell as fast as English, they do still sell with in some amount. And it seems like it's more now than it used to be. I don't know exactly why that would be, but it, it does. I get that impression. Well, I think that EDH is maturing as a format is really what's going on. And people are the deeper people get with their decks, the longer they play with them, the, the more they 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 get curious about how they can tinker with them to make them sexier. And as the format gets better, better known and cards in the, the decks become more recognizable, um, you know, there's a lot of cards in EDH that weren't that recognizable outside of that format. But if you spent enough time inside that format, they become the lightning bolts and so forth of the format. Like Cyclonic Rift is a nothing in modern. But in EDH, anybody that plays EDH can recognize that card by the art alone. And one of the things I thought yeah. was interesting was a lot of the feedback I got in the Twitter survey, because I asked people for details, was that, you know, people agreed with my general philosophy for this, this kind of thing with my EDH decks, which is that if, if it is a recognizable card that not everybody's going to have to read five times, and it's totally fine to use whatever version of it you feel like. Whereas if it's a super obscure card that's unique to your deck, or it's just, you know, some funs, fun of that you've put in. Um, then it's it's less appealing. Or, or if the, the card in question has a wall of text that would have to be referenced constantly on somebody's cell phone. Yeah, yeah like perhaps Sigil Tracer. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, all of that... Which is which is not a normal card. Sure. So I mean, all of that adds up to... You know, I was looking at the Hiroyuya site yesterday and they had, uh, I think, 12 copies in English of Palancron for 15 US each, roughly, and 10 Japanese copies. And a few years ago, I would have left those Japanese copies on the rack because, you know... EDH players, quote unquote, don't buy foreign cards. Um, but these days, I feel like we're just getting to the point where um, a movement on the English copy of the card can easily pull up the value of the foreign versions. And B, I think that there's a lot of people, enough people that are into it that I'm going to be able to unload those copies a little slower than the English copies. I think we can both agree, but I still think the market's going to be there. Yeah, I am definitely in agreement with you there that, um, you know, they, they don't sell as strongly as English copies do, but there's definitely people willing to buy them. So the opportunity can be right uh, if, for instance, the English one is at extremely low supply and is about to pop or did just pop. And you can find the foreign ones at like pre-spike prices plus with the foreign language reduction you know, because they, they start out lower, uh, that there's definitely potential value in there. You just have to be careful about what you're getting yourself into, you know, recognize how widespread the card is, recognize that it's not going to sell as well as the English copy is. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you can sell them for sure. And, and we have and we do, but uh, they're not quite as easy to get rid of as English. I mean, there's only 15 copies of Palancron on TCG Player between 20 and $25. So, I mean, inventory is getting pretty low. And this thing is like an instant win card with... Uh... Amari, what's the EDH general that it that it goes infinite with? Um, I'm not sure which one that would not be. Amari, it's called Anamari. I don't think there's a card, card Amari. Yeah, there you go. Oh yes, 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 yes. Because Ana, Anamar Soul of Elements um, is the one-one elemental creature for green, red, uh, blue protection from white and black. Whenever you cast a creature spell, put a plus one plus one counter on Animar Soul of the Elements. Creature spells you cast cost one less to cast for each counter on Animar. So basically, you play Palancron. Um, Animar gets bigger and reduce the cost of the next creature that you cast. Um, but Palancron, at minimum, untapped all the lands that you used to cast it. So now you're paying it for six, so you're up a mana. Then you can play it again. You're up for, you're up a mana, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You're basically at infinite mana right away. And Animar is infinitely large. 
So you can go off and win the game from there, however you see fit. Yeah, certainly good. And, you know, I think when it comes to stuff like reserve list cards and other cards of that sort of level, power level and rarity, uh, the foreign language characters probably makes is even less of a concern. Yeah. And I mean, it's just it, if people are out there trying to decide whether to jump on how to jump on the reserve list gravy train, please read my article from this week and any other rational article about reserve list targets that actually have demand profiles because it's, it's just going to work out better for you. Um, even if okay. you're, you're capable of making money on some of these penny stocks in, in the reserve list, if you're trying to put like decent sized amounts of money into this, you really want to be in things that where the demand is going to let you sell through and flip faster, faster, faster. Yeah. Yeah, for sure on that one. Um, okay. So next on our list is stone rain. We are oh, looking no, no, at no. foils. No, no. Next on our list is treachery. Um, the foils at Urza's legacy, um, which in similar fashion to Palancron foils last week have popped from 95 to in theory, 200. That's over 110% gain. I think you and I can both agree having recently sold foil Palancrons at the new price that this probably sticks as well. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that's the case. And I don't think that there was any real, trigger for this other than people all got into a frenzy again but i would say that once you've started selling cards at that copies at that price it is going to be pretty sticky it's kind of interesting because my greed rules require that like i picked up the foil palancron just last weekend for 170 locally flipped it almost immediately on twitter for at 255 i think you said you sold one at about the same price but I, i don't even feel like the person on the other end of that got a bad deal it's entirely possible that guy goes on to flip it for 400 later this year like my greed rules don't let me hold on for that long but because i always set a cap on like don't leave money on the table but i, I feel like a lot of this like good reserve list stuff is just going to ratchet up yet another notch whether it's three months six months or you know 18 months down the road the, the exit for the people that are buying right now may still be attractive um okay yeah i i would agree i would agree I mean, pal- the, the, a foil palancron, I think the lowest one listed on TCG was like 400 or something the other day. So, I mean, if somebody actually snaps one of those up and set, that sets a whole other plateau, another 150 above where we were selling. Yeah, it, you know, it's one of those things where it's like the guy probably didn't buy it to flip it, but he bought it on the way up. And now he, if he can actually get 400 for it, like, why not? It doesn't seem bad at all. Uh, you know, you can be like, OK, well, I'm just not going to own this card and I'm going to go back to the whatchamacallit one and uh be happy with the money i made well it's one of these things where like edh decks because they are not and they don't uh, aren't at risk from bannings and or um obsolescence of cards um nearly to the extent that the, the other constructed formats are um the owners of those decks feel much more comfortable holding the expensive pieces within them for longer and then have the lovely opportunity down the road of saying, well, hey, I want to get into this brand new deck. I want to spend like 500 to start acquiring pieces for a new deck I'm interested in. I can just flip out this foil palancron I bought two years ago and be able to spin off into this other thing I want. And that's an opportunity that modern players don't necessarily have. Like, for instance, you know, people holding on to Tarmogoyfs and foil Tarmogoyfs from a few years back have lost a lot of value that they may never recover. Um because they're just going to keep printing that card into the dust until it's cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And, you know, the EDH players aren't experiencing nearly that level of risk. For sure. I am one of those players. I have uh, several of these types of cards in my decks, you know, the foil palancrons and what have you. And I don't 
get rid of them. They just sit there and I'm fine with it. And I know that like those types of cards are just, I don't have to worry about them right They're Just kind of locked in at the, and the prices they are, and they're only going to go up. So I'm a perfect example of somebody who eats this card and removes it from the market basically permanently and has no rush, no reason to get rid of it either. Yeah. All right. Tell me about stone rain. Uh, stone rain is a three mana card that destroys lands and it's awesome. <laughs> uh, we're looking at the foil seventh edition copies uh, again. And as opposed to 10 minutes ago, five minutes ago, uh, foils jumped from three, just under four bucks to about eight. Uh, I see them once sold for about $8 on TCG. So um, probably a pretty reasonable price. We know green red Ponza has been a thing in modern for a while on the fringes. It seems like it's seen a little more success and a little more play lately. This is the only uh, foil old border copy that exists, I believe. So I think people were just kind of picking up the last few copies floating around. Seventh edition foils are extremely rare anyways. Um, uh, so I, I, I think that that's probably going to hang out between eight and $10, but I wouldn't expect to see it much above that, mind you, simply because there are so many copies and foil copies available that even though this is the coolest one, there are a lot of op- options for players who don't want to spend $40 on a foil. I mean, we're going to see what happens when people get bored of the like most ancient reserve list cards and start targeting high demand foils. Um, who knows what the spikes will look like 12 to 18 months from now. Yeah, well, actually, if any history is any indication, 12 months from now, it will be reserve list cards again because everything that spiked will have dropped because nobody's <laughs> actually buying it. And then we're going to do all this again. <laughs> I did see a lot of retracing. Um, e- even in the good EDH cards that I looked at two years ago uh, in the article I wrote for MTG Price this week, um, I noted that you know even cards like Yavimaya Hollow and, and Volrath Stronghold and Palancron and Treachery and so forth actually had very stable or even increasing inventory versus a few years back um, because their new plateaus had pulled inventory in and then it was a race to the bottom and demand didn't quite outpace supply. Um, and what that means for the really bad reserve list cards uh, is only a guess, but I would suggest that the retraces will be much more violent. Yeah, that's I, I believe that, especially uh, as players find out how much their old cards are worth, what have you, and are like, hell, I want to get rid of this. I didn't realize this had jumped because it'll probably take some players weeks and months to find out some of these cards moved in price and then they decide to dump them back into the market yeah the the one caveat is that the cards that have been being targeted are from the earliest sets in magic and the inventory uh released for say antiquities is extremely different than even for say urza's destiny or legacy which is also from the perspective of a 16 year old today they're both infinitely old sets of magic but you know there might be a factor of uh 10 or 20 in terms of number of cards printed between those two sets so it, it is true that it is harder for the market to restock like an antiquities rare than it is for them to restock palindrome right 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 for sure for sure um okay what do you got next for us so periphery nodes uh had the non-foils and the foils both have been on the move um but in theory periphery nodes non-foils moved from four to nine keep in mind this was on our list last week moving from like three to twelve that suggests to me that people have been reattacking the card trying to uh keep it pumped up um which undermines the real demand profile probably and, uh, but I think it's a safe bit, bet to pick these up because unless they show up in, say, Iconic Masters of the 25th, um, which is possible, but not super likely, um, you know, there's no reason these can't hold a higher plateau as an alternative in EDH to Drop of Honey, which has now exploded. Uh, yeah, I would agree with you there. Seems fair. 
Um, it seems like it might also maybe it's play, seeing more playing EDH too now that like people are aware of the card, like it puts it on the radar because it's not bad there either. It's a good one mana just annoy the hell out of people constantly. Um, next on our list is uh, definitely one that I had to read. It's called Monkey Cage. Uh, it's a five mana Mercadian Masks artifact. Uh, let's see here. We're looking at the foils jumped from five up to about 12 or so. For, so a little more than a double up. It's a five mana artifact. The next time a creature comes into play, sacrifice Monkey Cage. And then put a number of 2-2 monkeys into play equal to the converted mana cost of the creature that came into play. So if you play Monkey Cage on 5 and then somebody casts a 5 mana creature, uh, you get 5 2-2 monkeys. So not really obvious how this would tie into any of the new commander decks. I suspect that this is just a Mercadian mass foil that had very low supply. Somebody decided to scoop them up because they thought well, this should be worth more than it is. And now maybe it is. I don't know. Uh, I guess I could see the foils hanging out at 10 or 12 bucks, given how old this card is. But at the same time, I can't imagine a lot of people are playing the card. Until somebody tells me about some combo with this card, I'm going to say move right along. Yeah. All right. What do you got for us? So New Frontiers foils from Odyssey had a similar kind of move. This is the green sorcery for green and an X, which says each player may search his or her library for up to X basic land cards and put them into play tapped. Then each player who searched his or her library this way shuffles it. It's a group hug type card. Doesn't see super deep play in EDH, um, but obviously foils are relatively old. Um, I, I, I don't know what kind of demand you're going to get for this, if you, but if you've got one lying around, you may as well slap it up on TCG or eBay and see if you can unload it um, because anything over $20 seems fine for that card. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. I had this in a casual... When Zendikar came out, I built a 60-card casual landfall deck and I put new frontiers in and I was excited about that boy let me tell you um next on our list is remote farm uh this is the depletion counter basic or common land from Arcadian masks that um, comes into play with two counters on it taps for double white um and then after you do it twice it's, it, it, it dies so royals jumped from a dollar fifty to four i guess uh Okay, I suppose. I remember there was the one of these we talked about. I think it was a blue one with uh, Traxa. You like them because of the proliferate mechanic possibly being good with them. So I, I don't know. It's a dollar fifty to four. Who cares? Like you can't make money on that. It's like they're okay in a Traxa. They're hard, highly unlikely to get reprinted anytime soon. Um, somebody's been targeting the foils. I'm happy to hold on to the few I picked up at two or three dollars and see if they stabilize around ten at some point in the meantime. Who cares? Yeah. Um, more importantly, the Opalescence Foils, which is another reserve list foil with some relevance, uh, moved from 35 to 100. I think that's another plateau that can probably hold in and around, you know, anywhere from 70 to 125. Um, and if you can unload a copy you've had sitting in a binder for ages, that's fine. If you want to hold it for a while and test new plateaus, that's also fine. Um, these things won't be going back down much, um, although they may retrace off their plateaus before they hit a new one, you know, 6, 12, 18 months down the road. Um, moving right along, we've also got Postmortem Lunge. I saw this foil under attack for a few weeks now. Um, this is the one that gives a creature plus X plus zero and infect until the end of uh, turn. I, d I don't know why people are going after these. Um, I haven't seen any deck that uses them, to my knowledge. Um, so we'll just chalk that up to low supply. Well, I, so I'm just going to sorry jump in real quick. I know that that one overrun 
that gives your it's like plus one plus one and your creatures game gain in fact is surprisingly popular um in real casual circles so i kind of wonder if this is people seeing something of a similar effect and deciding to run with it because you can like one shot somebody with this if you have you know reanimate something huge that also has suddenly has in fact so not saying it's good, but I think that that might where be, might where this be where this comes oh, from. Oh yeah, I've got this wrong. It doesn't give plus X plus zero. It it returns a creature from your graveyard with X or less converted mana cost and gives it haste until the end of turn. And have people been fooling around with this with Death Shadow or something? This is a modern legal card. Oh, okay. So this is not the one with Infect. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I suppose that's possible. It's two mana for an instant speed. Uh, what should we call it? Instant speed Death Shadow. Yep, doesn't seem terrible in the speed haste duck shadow. Let me just check the the daily lists over on Goldfish and see if the if this thing has shown up anywhere. Okay, uh, but an interesting effect nonetheless. Uh, well, James is checking that. Let's see. Uh, he, we were going to talk about Heap Doll. Heap Doll. We're looking at the foil copies. Jumped from about a dollar to three dollar. It's a one mana one one artifact. Sack it to exile a card in a graveyard from the game. I can't imagine why someone would be buying foils of Heap Doll. Guess is as good as mine. Yeah, no idea. Moving right along. Cryptic Gateway from Onslaught moved from three dollars to nine dollars. That's real. I sold some. Um, it, it's a tri- good, solid tribal card that fits into a bunch of the tribal decks and fits into a bunch of future forward tribal decks. Uh, the non-foils are going to get reprinted in Commander at some point, but you're safe probably for, well, definitely for this year, almost certainly for next year. Um, I have a guess about what the Commanders are next year. Want to hear it? Uh, I want to tell you that I'm really happy to see Cryptic Gateway here because I've been ringing this bell since they announced tribal as this year's mechanic. And I said, if this doesn't get reprinted, buy them. And now they didn't get reprinted, and people are people are buying them because I sold. I picked up foils at like six yep. bucks nice. uh, as soon as the list came out, and was selling them at thirty. So for the foils, um, so cool beans. Uh, but yes, go ahead. But what were you gonna say? So if uh, Planeswalkers end up being legendary as of this fall, wouldn't you think that it's time to go back to Planeswalker commanders in the set next year and maybe do two color ones? Uh, I do, and I think that Wizards was probably a little disappointed that their Planeswalker Commander set was like the least interesting of all of the ones that they have released. They were probably expecting a lot more reaction to that than they got, but it was just because those Planeswalkers were so uninspiring, I guess. Um, So yeah, I could definitely see them running that back and trying to ratchet it up a little bit this time. It would feel like a huge miss if they didn't go in that direction, right? Like... First of all, going to two color make allows you to make the planeswalkers more interesting, um, and yeah. secondly, and the decks more interesting. You need to showcase the planeswalkers suddenly being legendary um, at some point during the year, and commander deck seems like a solid place to do it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Especially since if they're making them legendary, that seems EDH seems like part of the reason why that would be tying why they would be doing that. So, um, okay. So Void Mage Prodigy from Onslaught as well. We talked about the foils of this last week. This week it's the non-foils. Uh, looks like you know a dollar fifty to four fifty. So it looks really good on paper, but another one that's difficult to get those profits to materialize. Um, this is the one that you can sack a wizard to counterspell. Uh, it's the Kaibud Invitational card, nifty card. Uh, I, I don't know if you have them, sell them. I guess I, I don't know what you're gonna if you're really gonna make any money with them. 
Yeah, I mean, my the new rule I'm, <clears throat> I've instituted for myself <clears throat> to make sure I have time uh, to deal with spec stuff every week is I don't buy any card that I don't expect to sell over ten dollars. Yeah, and and, it, and I'm fine with it being a playset that, like, say, if I can get a playset of something for three dollars, and I think I'll sell it at twelve. Um, you know, that won't be a priority for me, but that would be like my my baseline. Anything worse than that, forget it. Yeah, I am mostly on board with you. I picked up um, probably like 30 sigil tracers for like 60 cents each or something like that. And now I'm selling them at like five and six bucks. I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm making several dollars a piece, but it's still annoying as hell to package all of that. And it's like, uh, you know, when I'm trying to plan a wedding, I'm not sure that this is actually even worth my time because I could be doing something more productive. Yeah. So I'm kind of there with you. Yeah, those ones are like, it's fine as you're doing it, but you just know you probably made a mistake somewhere. Like you could have. It feels bad even though it was a successful choice. Because yeah. I, I caught myself a couple of times this week just clearing out carts that had like 20 disparate things in them for like a few hundred dollars and then just going to Europe and mm-hmm. buying a, a card for $300 that's worth five. Like. <laughs> Yeah. There's, you, you don't need to make this complicated, people. You can keep it simple and 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 have more of your time to yourself. Yeah, yeah, I have done that countless times. Put a bunch of stuff in the cart, get to the checkout, look at, it and go, eh, never mind. I don't want to deal with selling all this crap. Yeah. All right, so I'm gonna skip a couple of these that are super uninteresting and move on to <laughs> bounty hunter in uh, Tempest, moving from. A dollar to three dollars uh only pointing this one out because it's a creature that taps to kill things that is apparently in demand for edh um but again it's so hard who cares about two dollars like you're just gonna it, pull this out of your binder put it into one of your decks and and see if it's actually any good and hope that someday it hits 10 sure um after that we would have fate spinner um, I think we talked about this. When did we talk about this last week too? This is the Mirrodin Wizard. The foils jumped from like seven fifty to thirty. It's the one that players only get like an untap, uh, draw or an attack phase. They don't get they have to skip one of them or they only get one of them. I don't know. It's a foil wizard that wasn't reprinted with a really uh, distinct effect. So yeah, it re- it retraced go. hard because it was on the list last week. Same kind of pop, so it was reattacked um, and. Hopefully it'll stabilize if you've got a copy lying around. Otherwise, moving right along. Door to Nothingness foils yep. from M13 going from 250 to 10. I can only assume that this is because five-color dragon decks might want to run Door to Nothingness as uh, uh, a win condition given that Draco can make all the mana for it, right? Is it Draco? Uh, Draco? Is, is Draco the new uh, dragon commander that can sack himself to make two of each color? there's Ramos, which, but that's not how he works. Ramos is when you cast a, every time you cast a multicolored spell, you put like counters on him. And then when he's, you remove like five counters or something like that to add 10 mana, two of each to your yeah, mana. So, pool. Yeah, yeah. So sorry, Ramos, uh, not Draxo. Draco, but he doesn't attack but, himself. Yeah. Sorry. Just, sorry. But you remove the counters and you get 10 mana and then you use door to nothingness and you win. Uh, well, you kill somebody, but yeah. Oh, that's actually funny. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, there you go. Oh, God, that's going to be so obnoxious to play against. <laughs> yeah, and then and then in theory, they re- they use, like, Goblin Welder or something to recurse the door and do it again. Does, does door uh, right, or, uh, exile uh, itself? It might. Uh, let's see. Door, nothingness. Nope. There's nope. too many nope. door cards. It's recursive. It goes to your graveyard. Brutal. 
the better way to do it is just uh, like rings a bright earth it and then just copy the effect. Um, the, next up, Quicksilver the art. Mm-hmm. Hold on. The, the art on the M13 is superior to the original art in, what was it, Fifth Dawn? Um, M13 yeah. art is really nice, so probably looks great in foil. Yep, it is nifty. Uh, next up, Quicksilver Elemental from Mirrodin. This is the like the foils jump from three and change four bucks to fifteen. It's basically a, another. It's it's a similar effect to Maricel, but not actually good. What's so funny here, James? That when I was out hunting local specs last weekend and posted a picture, um, uh, my standard humble brags picture, uh, meant to help people go track down similar cards locally. Um, I had a whole bunch of awesome things I had picked up at super good bargains, and in and amongst them were stashed three copy foil copies of Quicksilver Behemoth. Um, because I asked the guy at the counter for Quicksilver Behemoth when I meant Quicksilver Elemental, and ended up buying a completely pointless set of foils that do nothing <laughs> and do not <laughs> you interact didn't... with Marisol. <gasps> well, that's uh, there. You go. A good lesson for our listeners there, I suppose. Fail. MTG Finance fails <laughs> by MTG Critic. All right, what do you got next for us? Uh, Reaper of Shieldred from New Phyrexia foils in theory moving from a dollar to four dollars. I have no idea what the demand profile is for that card. Me neither. Popper. I'm just going to assume Popper. Everything that I don't recognize is just Popper from now on. This mythic rare increase in price is Popper. <laughs> yeah. This mystery Popper group. Fair enough. So, Foils of Docent of Perfection. This is the flip card from Eldritch Moon that flips into giving your wizards what? Plus two, plus one? Uh, sounds about right. Probably flying too, right? Does it get flying? That's, yeah. So, I bought some of these locally in around two or three dollars and then went ahead and bought uh, a couple copies on eBay at $7 this week, and somebody offered me a pile of them additionally at 7 And I'm thinking to myself, that might actually be a solid purchase. Even if Wizards is only mildly popular, um, there are almost no copies of this lying around. And it's super unlikely to see a reprint any time in the next three to five years. So if your short-term spec turns into a mid- to long-term spec, I think you're still your backstop is actually still pretty solid anywhere under 10 bucks. Sure, I don't hate that. I did. I remember looking at these. I didn't end up pulling the trigger on it, but I can see why one might. Um, next up on our list is Trans Guild Courier. What? Uh, Dissension Foil jumped from a dollar and change to six. This is the one that's just like a four mana. It's a hill giant that has all colors. Yeah, four mana three three hill giant with of all colors. I. Oh uh, no, Ramos that. No, because Ramos is just like checks to see if you cast a spell of more than one color. I don't think it checks for all colors, right? Like it's not like whenever you cast a spell of a color at a counter. No, that can't be it. I don't know why Trans Guild. I don't. I don't know. Like what? Who suddenly needs a hill giant that adds us? I have no idea. I, I know there. I've seen combos with this before that are that care about um, how many colors of permanence you have. Uh, so like bring this lets bring the light get a five casting cost uh card right uh well no because bring the light is how the mana you spend oh yeah that doesn't work like permanent to control there are cards i know there are cards that do what you want but it's not bring the light yeah anyway i don't know though holler at us and tell us how dumb we are if you know why transcode courier foils popped or how dumb the people are buying this (laughs) fair enough all right what else? So we got Carnival of Souls foils from Urza's Legacy. This is another reserveless foil, in theory, moving from 20 to 100. Uh, demand profile on this card is much lower. I think you're going to have trouble unloading it at that price. 
Uh, it doesn't quite have the cachet of some of the other ones from that block, um, but probably no rush to to sell it now because even if it retraces like halfway, it's still a fifty dollar card. Yeah, that's not a bad one to go with. I was looking to grab some of those. I'm always surprised that that card wasn't more expensive than it was because it seemed pretty usable in um, in EDH. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't show uh, very high demand in existing decks, but it could be one of these things where older cards, just EDH players don't know about them and don't know that they could abuse them. Right. I wish I had some tool to make casuals know about cards so that they would suddenly buy them because that seems to be the override the, the limiting factor on several of my specs here is just an awareness of the card so i do have an idea on uh, in direct answer to that discussion but it's gonna have to wait for a little while till i get a little closer to unveiling it uh okay we will move on to baron master wizard the non-foils this week moved from a dollar to ten dollars although i'm not sure how real that is but it is a reserve list card and it is a wizard so it gets two check boxes in the finance metagame of the week scorecard um he you sack a permanent to bounce a sacrifice permanent return target creature to its owner's hand so you can either return crap to your opponent's hands really good at eating tokens um or you can sacrifice something you actually want to get rid of to balance a creature like a Sandcatch or Mage or whatever to your own hand. So certainly a very tricksy, fiddly magic card and a wizard and reserve list. Um, I don't know. Maybe you can swing 10 bucks. I guess now that people want wizards, there's going to be appeal for the card Master Wizard, even if he's not the best card in the deck. Yeah, he's like a medium card in the wizard deck. Um, but I think, yeah, he because it's reserve list, it should easily hold $10. Yeah, this is the type of card you'd be like, oh, I have to put this in my wizard deck, and then you'd play three games with it, and you'd be like, this card's terrible, and you'd cut it, but you would have bought it in the first place. So we spent the better part of an hour going through like 20 cards, and we're not, haven't even touched the tip of the iceberg on the 20 or 30 additional cards that popped super hard from the reserved list. We're not even going to go through this list. Um, you can look it up for yourself, but tons of bad cards from Antiquities, Arabian Nights, Legends in the Dark continue to be targeted. Um... Clearly, no one's going to rest until they have all been pushed up to new plateaus and then had a chance to retrace. So do as you will here. I, I think you've got better options, um, but by all means, jump on the gravy train if you think it's fun. Yep, I, I didn't want to read any of that crap. Uh, let's move to our segment two, Cards to Watch. James, what uh, what have you got for us this week? So I got a pretty clear EDH focus here. Um, there's a whole bunch of cards that i've been keeping my eye on looking for low supply situations um one of those is palace siege foils from uh fate reforged foils are available in and around the two dollar range inventory is not super deep i think these end up being like an eight to ten dollar card it shows up in like 5k edh decks it's a powerful flexible card that fits in many creature based black decks this is the enchantment for five and basically it gives you two options you can either bring a creature back from the graveyard every turn um or you can uh make all of your opponents lose two life and you gain two life for each two life that they lose this way um that is exactly the kind of thing i want to have on the table in edh yeah this card uh that's actually really really interesting that this is two box i like that because this card i have this in 
uh, my Rakdos deck uh, for the purpose of just draining, getting damaged on the player so I can cast Rakdos. But like that's why I put it in the deck and then one day I like drew it and looked at it. I was like, oh wait, this reanimates a creature or like Gravedigger is a creature every turn. Jeez. Um, it was a very powerful card for five mana. Definitely, I would say a top black enchantment i suppose um in this price range converted mana cost range i like it for two bucks sure i can definitely see this this growing um what's the edh demand on this right now on edh track? like five thousand. Oh, that's real good i definitely like that and, and that's five thousand without dragons being a, a significant presence right like the scion of the ur dragon decks only make up 150 of of those instances most of it's coming from rakdos aloro karlov mogus uh, and queen marquesa so it leads me to believe that the dragon-based EDH deck gets a slam dunk, right? Because A, it's on theme, um, even though it doesn't particularly uh, benefit dragons. But bringing a dragon back is a lot more exciting than bringing back a 2-2. Um, and the ability to just, you know, if you're in a low life situation, staring across the table, the ability to be draining life from the team uh, or from your opponents is, is a nice little flex bonus. So yeah, I like that one a lot. What's your, what's your first one this week? Well, I am also on the EDH train, as we are most weeks. Uh, I'm going to start off with Hellkite Tyrant. This is um, one of the dragons. Obviously, uh, foils right now are at $10. Um, and I think that you could easily see these at $25. Uh, this is the one that steals all of a player's artifacts when you hit them, which is extremely obnoxious uh, to be on the other side of. And if you happen to have... Uh, 20 artifacts at the start of your upkeep you win the game so this steals soul rings and signets and that type of crap and then it also gives you a way to just win the game on the spot which is really good against decks uh certain opponents who you might not be able to power through um yeah supply is very low it's very powerful you know we didn't get any more foils i think that this is a pretty comfortable target the only thing about these dragons is i want to be in and out of them as fast as possible because there's a risk of them showing up in one of the two next master sets right like iconic masters and the 25th anniversary could easily end up having important dragons in them yeah and i think that that's a shadow that hangs over the head of almost all of our specs um is that with both of those sets on the horizon and both of them so poorly defined in terms of what to expect that it is a real concern um so it's just sort of like i guess i we just pick the stuff and know that that shadow is overhanging up plus i kind of expect that each of these tribes has one or two cards it didn't get reprinted um and it's because wizards knew that they were going to put it in another product within the next six months right like they didn't dump all the dragons at once they gave us most of them and they'll give us one or two more shortly after that they knew people were also looking for so that could be these I, i i don't know you know and that's just kind of their as a concern across the board, I'd say. If it dodges reprint, then the foils going from 10 to 20 to 30 range seems solid. Um, continuing on with our dragon theme, um, dragon arch foils we saw pop recently, um, and I've been selling relatively briskly on eBay. Um, dragon arch, the non-foils on TCG, you could clear out the last 20, 30 copies pretty easily around three bucks a copy. Um, and I'm willing to bet you can post up shop then at 10 bucks. Hmm. Okay. I believe that. It's just the inventory has dropped relatively low. It's kind of an auto-include. This is the the artifact that um, costs five to get out, but then from there on out, 
two and a tap puts any multicolored creature card from your hand into play. So solid in Kalia, solid in the dragon decks, solid anytime you've got a bunch of big multicolored creatures in your deck um, that you would like to have mana discounts on. Yeah, and uh, you know I think the dragon precon is has a lot of is not quite that multicolored, um, but there are definitely a lot of multicolored dragons out there, such that you can kind of bend to really take advantage of this effect a little bit. Or I should say, it seems unlikely that you will not have targets very frequently. So that's a very powerful effect. And my buddy actually played the Dragon Precon out of the box against several of our more tuned decks last night and they ended up winning. Um, so the deck seems pretty capable once it gets going. Uh, just slamming dragons turn after turn, it can be difficult to deal I with. I mean, the build I'm I've putting together has a lot of monocolored dragons, so it's not necessarily the great best place for the Dragon Arch card, but you can easily end up with a deck down the road that's more multicolored focus than EDH. Um, and and this card just gets better and better as time goes on. And since it wasn't printed in the dragon deck because it wouldn't quite have been like the right fit there, you know, th- this now probably doesn't have a chance of getting reprinted for a while. Because if we believe that we're getting Planeswalker Commanders next year, which of course is just a, a theory but a solid one, um, then you know where is Dragon Arch going to get reprinted? Maybe in a ma- right. in one yep. of the master sets, but you know it's not a high priority target, so the risk is relatively low. I completely agree. All right. Um, yep. My next card is uh, Balefire Dragon. This is another dragon, um, obviously. This one basically just wipes your opponent's board off of the face of the earth every time it connects it. Um, deals damage to all of their creatures equal to the damage it did to the player. So when it hits you for six damage, it also hits all your creatures for six damage, which is pretty savage. Um you can pick these non-foils you can pick up uh, at around $10. Um, there's reasonably low supply on this guy. He's basically one of the best dragons to actually hit a player with uh, because he has such a dramatic impact on the board. So I, I think these can pretty easily coast up to $20, especially with where supply is and how powerful this is and how Every person who's building an EDH deck is going, or dragon deck is going to want to put this in there. Um, just like James said, with a caveat, you want to get out of this kind of quickly once it does move, and you have both of the master sets kind of hanging over your head. But so long as he dodges both of those, uh, I think you can get out of these for a double up at 10 bucks extra a piece. The thing is, it's even better in Kalia than it is in any of the dragon decks because she puts it in hasty um, and, well, and sure. attacking, and then she it hits and then wipes boards. <laughs> that. Yeah, this is disgusting because, uh, you know, you're playing all those cards that increase the efficacy of dragons as well. So, like, Crucible of Fire suddenly means now you're not doing six to all their creatures, you're doing nine type of thing. Uh, It's a lot of damage. Yeah. All right, so the only card on our list that's not dragon-related this week is my final pick, which is Chasm Skulker Foils. Um, I think that Chasm Skulker has proven itself in the Atraxa builds uh, where it abuses the the hell out of having... Uh, counters put on it. Um, it can be recursed in a, in a number of ways and then make a whole bunch more squids and um, draw a bunch more cards and so forth. It's, it's a multi-purpose tool that works well with things like Deep Glow Skate, etc. Um, and it got reprinted last year, but did not. we didn't get new foils. So the M15 foils are still the only ones around, and I could easily see those foils floating from $7 up to, like say, the $15 range. 7,000 decks run it. Azuri, Atraxa, Marquesa, these are big names in EDH. 
Um, and I think it's pretty likely that those foils give you a chance at profits before you ever see them get a reprint. Okay. I, I, you've been talking about Chasm Skulker for a while, and it is an interesting card. It does a lot of cool things. Uh, so I think it's a fine, a fine ride up. That's a lot of decks. 7,000? That's a lot more than I would have guessed. Yeah, and there's only like 12 foil copies left on TCG below $10. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That is pretty solid. I feel like you, I remember you talking about this at like a dollar or two or something like that. Oh, yes. Like yes, you've yes, talked yes, about this yes. several times. I am definitely holding this card in, in many multiples. Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. So let's hop over to Grand Prix Denver. It was standard last weekend. Um, the one thing that I saw when I looked at the results is a fair bit of energy again. And I think energy is an interesting deck to just keep an eye on because the deck basically loses nothing on rotation. So like day one of Ixalan, you have a tier one competitive deck at the ready. And I kind of wonder if this is going to take the slot of like the red aggressive deck, you know, that we tend to see early in a format because no one's figured anything else out yet. And then you're just getting them dead. And it's basically the same thing. You're just, you're the aggressive deck. You're getting them dead, but it's not just mono red. Yeah. Team energy looks like it sticks around. Um, zombies keeps most of what it needs. Um, no, zombies loses a lot. Loses a couple of key, like, uh, of the one drops, right? Like, it's going to lose. Uh, you lose the dead one that Relentless Dead and Crip Breaker. All right. So yeah, that, I, that might be enough to knock it off the podium. Yeah. But um, Teamer Energy Ag is unscathed. Yeah. Azorius Aggro showed up in the top eight. Uh, this was four Bygone Bishop, four Cloud Blazer. Hanweir, Militia Captain, Selfless Spirit, Spell Queller, and Thraben Inspector with spells like Declaration in Stone, Dusk to Dawn, Metallic Rebuke, and Oketra's Monument. That's a cute little deck. I like those like value engine mid-range decks that can present an aggro plan, but then have ways to get into tight corners by, say, wiping the board while they bring all of their little guys back with Dusk to Dawn. You and Sam Black both. Um, that is a cool one as well, but, uh, that like zombies, a huge percentage of their creature base is all, uh, is, is rotating. So that's all going, that's all going at rotation as well. There was almost 1200 players at Grand Prix Denver. Um, I don't these... know how that can, hmm? I said there was 1200 players at Grand Prix Denver. So I don't know how that compares to what they would usually get in that region, but it's a, you know, it's not a sub thousand, thousand person GP. So that's a relatively decent sign. You uh, you think twelve hundred's good? I don't know. I kind of thought that might be a little on the low side. I figured yeah, they were trying to average two thousand. Now, is that incorrect? I think it depends where you are, right? Like Denver is relatively isolated in terms of what where it can draw from population, as opposed to opposed to a lot of the stuff on the Eastern Seaboard or in California. Yeah, that's true. It is in the middle of nowhere, as they say. So you really need to go back and you need to look at like past GP Denver's and see what they've looked like when they were the same format. Um, and I suspect this is still a little low versus what the potential was. Um, I would have guessed something like in the fourteen to sixteen hundred player range, but um, at least it wasn't sub a thousand. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, okay. Well, so the only other thing, I, the only other thing I wanted to point out uh, from top eight list was there was a tournament called MTG First Vintage Two K, which had thirty six players, um, which is not relevant financially. But there was a deck here that caught my eye: Queller Blade. Huh. This is basically like Stoneforge Mystic into Sword of Fire and Ice or Batter Skull on the top of like a almost uh, 
like a, a white blue control shell with like mana drains and force of wills, dig through times, brainstorms, ancestral recall, swords to plowshares, etc. Eight of the creatures are four stoneforge mystic and four snapcaster mage, but it also runs four spell queller. Spicy and vintage. <laughs> I suppose so. That is that is amusing. I can't imagine that does that means anything to anything for prices, but uh Okay. Well, I like I, I like Spellqueller foils because I keep seeing them pop up in weird lists. I've seen them in all of the constructed formats now. It's popped up in standard. It's been in modern. It's in legacy and 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 vintage. Obviously, in legacy and vintage, it's a little bit more of a push. But you know this this and this was a tiny tournament. So, but it would be a card to keep your eye on. I think primarily on the on the basis of modern play, where a two three flyer that can essentially short term counter a spell, um, you know has been shown to be solid and i think bant spirits decks that uh um caleb derward was running earlier this year and could easily see a resurgence before it gets uh and a chance to pop off before it gets reprinted so at rotation i would be curious to see what those foils get down to okay okay sure it's possible possible um anything else at denver you want to talk about no, I think we're good. Okay, standards in a good pl- good place. It's I I hope it doesn't end up in a bad place this fall because <laughs> that would be unfortunate given um, how much people seem to be enjoying it right now. Yeah, right, right. Uh, so let's jump over to our segments of the week. We've got a couple of choices here. Um, we'll start out with MTGO booster boxes. We had a listener ask us. Oh, crud. Let me see if I can find the window. I've got a couple of them. Uh, no, not that one. This one. Uh, somewhere I had them window open i lost it but he asked about mtgo booster boxes and the changes of redemption and are there opportunities blah 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 and i think you and i are basically on the same page which is stay the hell away from mtgo uh there might be money left out there well his is uh, so yeah Sorry, stay, his, his question his question was about the value of the mtgo prize packs it was i think he was talking about with the changes to the redemption are there opportunities there and how does that impact things so, I mean, as far as the MTGO market goes, I don't want to put my money anywhere near that format, even less so than I did in the past. And I mean, I know you were a pretty big proponent of being an MTGO before, but even you've cleaned out right now, right? Yeah, I was managing for the last couple of years, like 10,000 worth of MTGO tickets and making pretty decent returns, um, both in combination of loaning it out to some other people that were managing next level for me and, and doing some of that myself. But last December, I just did not like the sound of where things were headed with the software and decided to clean it all out and reinvest. A lot of which is was where I sourced money to reinvest in Europe. Um, and that, those were all very strong moves that I'm pretty happy about. Um you can make money on MTGO. Um, you can still do it today, but I don't like the long-term prospects. And I and now that we've got some clarity on um, what MT uh, Magic Digital Next is, and we it seems as though it is not a replacement for MTGO. In some ways, that um, indicates that that economy is going to be relatively stable. Um, but if that game is amazing and does really well, it could easily siphon off activity from MTGO. If it's so fun and so amazing that everybody loves it, um, then it stifles the growth by cannibalizing from this other pro- older product. And if it's not good and it just kind of falls the way of the dinosaur, which is actually where my money's at, like I, I have a feeling this game's going to be garbage. Um, and if that ends up being true, then it may send the signals up the chain at Hasbro that wizards shouldn't be investing in digital because they just don't do it well. Um, which will not bode well for 
MTGO to ever get a refacing. And since we know MTGO Digital Next is their core focus, um, and we don't have any news about Magic Online getting an overhaul, it could be years before that system ever even remotely approximates hitting like a competitive parity with other products in the marketplace like Hearthstone and so forth. And what that says to me is that it will bleed users off over time as it becomes further and further out of date versus the market. And we'll have a lot of trouble recruiting new players into Magic because it's just such a bad experience. Um, all of which adds up to uh, a high um, variance version of MTG Finance that I don't want to be a part of. And it requires you to, tra if you're doing both paper and online, you're tracking two completely different inventory sets because though they sometimes move in concert with one another, the moves are very different and all of the, the dynamics are very different. I think that Making money on Magic Online requires a, a lot of research, and I, I don't suggest you do it unless you're willing to spend, say, three to five hours a week keeping on top of it. Yeah, that's, oh God, just such a, not even with a 10-foot pole type of thing. And you know what's wild to me is to imagine that two years from now, you can picture Blizzard putting out like a sort of proof of concept uh, VR Hearthstone. You know what I mean? over on any one of any number of platforms, they could kind of, you know, okay, check it out. You want to play on the world stage of Hearthstone. Like you can sit in that room that they have their tournaments in, in front of the fire uh, and play Hearthstone uh, and look around like that. And think about where MTGO is going to be in two years, right? Do you really think it's going to increase to that level? So it's just the, the disparity between the digital offerings that Wizards has, especially MTGO and what other companies are going to be having on that front is going to be remarkable. Yeah. So uh, the short answer is I'm I'm out of touch with the Magic Online economy, but I don't think it's something you want to be more than dabbling in unless you are very serious about it. And you need to have a plan a plan for getting out easily. Um, you know, I had my holdings were relatively consolidated. It wasn't a lot of tiny stuff. It was all you know higher value cards, and so I was able to liquidate over the course of a day or two um, without sacrificing much value. You definitely want to be in that kind of position with that software because the future is just so uncertain. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's uh, let's move on to another topic. The uh, Hour of Devastation. We got asked if now is the time to move in on EDH cards from Hour of Devastation. So reminder: the Hour of Devastation came out pretty recently. It was the most recent set. Uh, was july i believe um so a little while a little, little while now we're talking at like uh, that one mirror card whose name i can never remember uh ramanab i'm sorry mirror gallery yep uh ramanab excavator which is the crucible world on a body um and those types of cards so i would say that you, there's no rush at the moment um supply is pretty heavy but it will it should still trend up a little bit um, it is still being drafted, not commonly, not regularly, but you know, if you want to draft right now, that's probably what you're doing and it will be for a little while, uh, until October. Um, so, you know, if you've spot some stuff at a really good price, I don't think it's a bad idea to move in at the moment, but I'm not in a rush to, I think you can wait if you need to. Yeah, I, I think that with EDH uh, specs, especially foil specs, let your, and with specs in general, let yourself be supply driven. Um, keeping in mind where peak supply is likely to fall is relevant, but more relevant is, is has somebody already made a move and made it easy on you? Um, the, I, I never buy cards out or virtually never. Um, if I do, it's incidental because there's only a couple of copies left by the time I get there. But mopping up, as long as you're still getting good prices, um, is much 
is going to result in you holding for less time and likely lead to better results. So say there's <clears throat> 100 copies of Ramanab Excavator in foil lying around for months. You don't need to be in a rush to pick any of that inventory up and hold it. Now, you can choose to hold... If you really believe in the card, you can do what I call it, like buying up the ladder, which means like cards at 10, inventories deep, you can buy some foils, hold them for a while, and and hope that they're going to go up instead of going down. But if they go down, you still believe in the card, so you buy more and your dollar cost averaging lower. Um, but most of the time, you can just wait. Um, so, you know, like there's been very few cards that I've been willing to go in on while they were at peak supply. I think I bought some like Panharmonicon foils, specifically Japanese and Russian copies, um, pretty early on in their release because that card is bonkers long-term in EDH, unlikely to see frequent reprints. If it shows up in an EDH deck, it's going to be non-foil and the premium versions of the card will be relatively rare. So, you know, that's the kind of card I would be willing to, and, and the, and in a rarer form that I'd be willing to go in on. Non-foils, no. I mean, any non-standard like standard legal rare that's sitting around on shelves in hundreds and hundreds of quantity, um, you don't need to be in any rush, and you can kind of wait for rotation for that set before you need feel the need to pick any up. Yeah, I tend to function on the same vector, which is to be generally supply-driven as well. Uh, I I kind of keep an eye on it and I go, okay, there's still a lot of supply. I don't need to make any purchases. And then if it's something I really like, I'll keep checking back regularly. You know, every couple of days I might come by and take a look and see what's going on. Um, and then once I notice that like, oh yeah, that seller who's had the lowest listing for like the last week, suddenly he sold out. Oh, and it looks like the guy above him sold out as well. Uh, maybe now is time for me to snag some of these because someone else is starting to to notice and buy copies. Um, so I would say, you know, go for it right now if there's, if there's a particularly good price on something you like, but just know that uh, we aren't necessarily right at the floor, but we're probably close-ish especially for some you know for some of the higher demand stuff though you know like the the crucible worlds on a stick guy uh i mean he's so obvious right out of the gate that it's possible that we don't really see him decline by that much um i mean that could be one of those cards that really pulls up sooner than we might expect simply because it's so clear and so obvious that it's popular the thing there is you got to be aware of other printings, right? Like, so for Ramanab Excavator, there's uh, a buy-a-box promo, which is going to hold things back. Now, buy-a-box promos don't necessarily have to hold you back forever. For instance, Supreme uh, Verdict buy-a-box foils just popped right alongside pack foils just recently. Um, but the Ramanap and the Ramanap uh, Excavator uh, buy-a-box uh, arguably has uh, better art uh no, uh, worse art. <laughs> the launch, this was the launch party release event promo, not a buy a box, sorry. Um, okay. And the art is clearly inferior to the pack foil. So I would think pack foils would be the way to go there. Um, but be aware that you do have some uh, demand drift. Um, there's also a lot more of those lying around than there are. Uh, I think I said Mirror Gallery earlier, but it's not Mirror Gallery. It's Mirage Mirror from Hour of Devastation um, mm. that likely has a future in EDH. But there are significantly fewer of those foils under $10 sitting around on the internet than there are for Ramen Up Excavator. Um, Mirage Mirror fits in more decks as it's colorless and can copy artifacts, creatures, enchantments, or lands until end of turn. That just gives it so much open-ended synergy to show up in so many more EDH decks that... You know, it's one of the things you need to consider. Like sometimes a card is amazing, but it's only amazing in a in a couple of 
uh, builds. And if that commander is not one of the, say, the top 10 commanders, then you might really want to consider something else that's a little more deck neutral that's just going to show up all over the place. Yeah, I mean, those types of cards are always uh, have an appeal. I do think that um, Robin Up Excavator is probably going to be pretty widely played in a lot of decks. Um, you know, if you're green, it's a pretty appealing effect, especially because it's easier to work with in some regards than an artifact. Like you can tutor for it. It gets cost reductions from your other creatures, that type of crap. So um, there's some value there. But in general, I think that's our our comments on on our Devastation EDH, which leads us to our third topic of the week, Hascon, which is uh, probably not breaking the way Hasbro was hoping it would. Um we know that the so there's a couple interesting components here. First of all, we know that those SDCC promos this year have basically not moved at all. Like they, you know, in past years they sold out in minutes. This year it's been like two weeks, and I don't even know if they're gone yet. And then over on the Hascon side of things, it was supposed to be this big deal. It's you know their own their own convention. Uh, you can draft Iconic Masters twenty five. It's supposed to be really cool. Well, you know, like when PAX rolls around or Gen Con, like tickets for those sell out instantly. Um, there's a huge secondary market for those tickets because people want to go. A lot of buying and selling. Meanwhile, Hascon tickets are on sale on Groupon for half off, which is just like mind boggling. The disparity between uh, des- uh, demand for those tickets. Uh, that's that is a real kick in the teeth for Hasbro, and I suppose they probably kind of expected it, like, or at least I should say they were prepared for that eventuality. Like, it's a new con, and people don't know what they're getting yet, so they're like, "Well, we have to do it once or twice so that people can find out what we're all about, and then they'll the demand will increase." But I don't remember packs being so easy to get tickets for at any point in its life cycle. So this uh, this is not looking great for Hasbro overall, I would say. Okay, so here's the thing. This is a marketing project, not a, a revenue driver. You, you don't set up your own personal con as something you're hoping is going to be a major revenue contributor. This is a marketing-led um, experiment. And so, and if they're doing this, uh, you know, with a long-term vision, Excuse me. If you're doing this with a long-term vision, you have to understand that you're probably going to lose money the first few years until you kind of figure out the formula that you know uh, gives you the broadest possible appeal with your fans. One of the things that I think uh, holds them back here in year one is that a it's not being well, particularly well publicized to the target audience. Um, I, I haven't received any direct targeting via the various like media and content vehicles that I would have expected. You know, this is the kind of thing where various podcasts should have been running ads for it. um, And content uh, sites also should have been recruited to pass on the word. And I haven't seen much of that at all. Um, The, and, you know, the location being in Rhode Island makes sense in the sense that it's near Hasbro headquarters. But that's a super weird location for, you know, anybody that's not in the Northeast uh, cordon of, of the country. And it's a, it's a weird con because it is straddling a whole bunch of different brands unified under the Hasbro umbrella. And one of the things that, you know, uh, Goldfish covered this on their cast uh, last week. And one of the things they got right when they were talking about it was, you know, it's, it's odd because there isn't a lot of overlap between a lot of these brands necessarily. Um, 
Now, where they got it wrong is an understanding of who who is actually targeted by those various other brands that are non-magic. And I do have some experience in this because I've been involved in uh, bigger toy cons and um, the the broader collectibles industry in general through my work with ShelfLife.net. Um, so I I want to throw in a few uh, you know tidbits here. So. Keep in mind that the biggest brands for Hasbro are not Magic. Like, Magic is one of their, like, mid-tier brands. Um, Play-Doh is a bigger brand than Magic internationally. (laughs) Because it's it's a generic toy that sells to millions of children. Um, But the most important brands, like North America side, in terms of fan bases and draws to conferences, um, uh, are things like Star Wars, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and, and My Little Pony. Um, and to a lesser extent, they're gaming brands that are related to kind of classic games like Monopoly and so forth. And the Goldfish guys were talking about how it's weird because Magic is like older people and then these other brands are all for children. No, 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 no. Those brands are not for children. Yeah, they sell through a big box to children and a big part of their sales is to children. But a big part of their like super engaged fan base that will show up for these kind of things is males over 30. Even the the My Little Ponies deal with their brony contingent, right? Which is like adult males that are into toy ponies for reasons I've never fully understood. Um, And it's not like some weird like gendered thing, like guys aren't allowed to like ponies. It's just like I've never really – the play pattern with these things, I have never understood the adult appeal. Whereas something like a Transformer, you know, you can take or leave that brand um, depending on your 80s nostalgia level. But – Transformers are masterfully engineered toys. <laughs> they're they're they cool. Are. They're really cool. I'm not even a Transformers fan. I liked them when I was a kid. I'm like, I'm not super into them and I don't own any, but I have always like respected that they're nifty and they look cool and they're a cool concept. Like everything about them is just cool, even if I don't own them. Yeah, I mean, the engineering on these has only gotten better over the years, and the lower end um, part of their segment that they market at small children is has been simplified over the years, so you basically don't even transform them. Like, the dumbest kid can get their hands on it and, and turn it from robot to car. But their higher-end stuff, their masterpiece series, and like Voyager and Beyond, so like $30 price point and up, is all very adult-targeted. Like, a 6-year-old, 8-year-old is going to have a lot of trouble transforming like the higher end transformers they are puzzles in the same way that like lego sets are marketed to you know engineering and programming type people that are into like long-term puzzle solutions and that is a massive mega brand worth billions of dollars like if you want to look at the top 20 movies of all time you're going to find several of the bad transformers movies on that list for a reason because internationally they do extremely well gi joe is kind of a dubious brand at this point because you can't really market it market it to kids in an era of like constant shootings in the u.s um and terrorism but uh, you know, there are still plenty of 30, 40, and 50-year-old guys who would buy all the G.I. Joe that they'll shovel at them. And uh, so, I mean, these if you look at the people that show up at big cons, uh, nerd cons all over North America, these are the same people, you know, the, the relatively high disposable income 30 to 40-year-old males and to a lesser extent females um, are who Hascon is actually targeting. It's not like they, there's a bunch of families and kids projects associated with this. And that makes sense because you're going to draw some of that into these cons and, 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 and they're going to be a part. Uh, but the big spenders are, are typically, you know, the single males that are, you know, 25, 30 plus. And so understand Hascon in that context, right? Like if you look at a lot of the the stuff that is on, on display, you know, there's there's like a $200 dinner 
um, where you get to meet like Mark Wahlberg and a bunch of the people associated with the Transformers movie. That's not aimed at some kid. That's aimed at dude who's been collecting Transformers since the 80s and has like a $50,000 collection. Oh, my God. Yeah, that is <laughs> that is quite an investment. I would have to think that um, also it, it can't be aimed for kids because how many people are going to drag their like three-year-old to 12-year-old all the way to Providence to wander around a convention center for a weekend, like to look at toys, right? Like if you live in Providence, I guess, and there are some people that will make that trip with their kids, but it just seems like, why are you, you're basically taking your kid on this huge trip to a big toy store, I suppose. Like, it just seems like if you're a family, like Walt Disney World or any of those types of things probably just fit more for what your family wants to do with its vacation dollar, maybe. It's just hard for me to imagine people taking their, like, preteen children to this convention when they could do so many other things with it. Whereas adults, you know, people like you and I, who are, like, you know, the true the ultra level consumer uh, for, you know, not necessarily of all brands, but at that point, that's the trip we'll take because for us, it's like, Oh, this is the one time of year we get to see that type of thing. Yeah. I mean, there's no way families are traveling from afar given the costing of this event and, and it's timeline, right? Like it's, it's after it's the weekend after, well, a couple of weeks after most kids are back in school. So no families are going on vacations at that point, not a, not abroad. This They're going to have to market this regionally, like within 100 miles, to bring mm-hmm. in families, to bring in the family contingent. Now, there are people that might travel from up to, say, 1,000 miles away um, to come in for this, but they'll be relatively small. They'll be big spenders. They'll make a weekend of it. And they're there because they want to do the stuff like um, one of the only events that sold out so far is actually the play with the play magic with the wizard staff which is kind of weird because gunslinging is available at at many events for magic um and has never been particularly compelling from my perspective um the you know the most other the most compelling uh, alternative events are that there's like a 25th anniversary chaos draft format that's available for 15 bucks a draft and then there's the 60 dollar um iconic masters uh, sealed deck events that are you know six booster packs of iconic masters months ahead of the release so you know we're thinking about sending travis over there to report on that and show off um you know some early uh, knowledge about what's actually in that set um but you know beyond that w- would i pay big money to go to this thing no probably not but only because they're you know most people have a big con in their backyard like Fan Expo is the second biggest con after San Diego Comic-Con in North America for nerds. And that's like next week here in, in Toronto over the long weekend. It's five days long. So on, wow. the, on the tail end of that, there's no way I'm going to, you know, fly over to Rhode Island. And, and beside the point, I'll be surfing that week. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, it's clearly has a market that it's aimed at. But, you know, they're just the level of difficulty they're having with this. I mean, the the lo- lack of popularity that we're seeing is really, I think, stunning. Um, and it will be interesting to see, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not wizards and I, I don't organize these things. I'm not I don't know a lot about cons. So maybe it's reasonable not to expect a huge turnout your first year. You kind of have to build that. I could see that. Uh, but in any case, it certainly does not look good from the consumer perspective that the event is uh, as tickets on discount on, on Groupon. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. We don't know for sure that this thing's going to be a fail. Like, I think I, I would guess it's going to be modestly to medium attended I, I, because I think regionally this is there's enough big brands here um, that they will bring in local fans and families to an extent. 
I don't think it's going to be sold out by any means. And that's what the Groupon signals is that they're nowhere close to selling out. And it's possible that some of the brands, like say Magic, may the the value on offer to attend may be perceived as being low enough that you might show up there and be in an iconic Masters sealed event with like twelve other people, you know, with some awesome EV on on tap. Um, so we'll see. I mean, if we put your body on the floor, then we'll know for sure. That would be it. Would be pretty wild to just sit there and grind those drafts all day. Like if they're, if it's, if it's like that low demand that you can just like fire one and then wander over and do another one, just like, yeah, I'll sign up for the one o'clock draft and the two o'clock draft and the three o'clock draft. And, uh, just give me all the packs. I'll just pay you now. Give me all the packs and I can go home early. <laughs> yeah. Cause the thing is like the, the, the worst possible scenario is that you pay for like an iconic master sealed or something and it doesn't go off. And then what do they do? Like you still get to keep the packs, but there's no event. So <laughs> uh we'll see how that we'll, we'll see how that goes okay um all right is there anything else you want to touch on this week it's been a lengthy episode so i feel like nothing too too long here yeah i just wanted to shout out that i've got an article on mtg price right now called the rational approach to the reserved list which gives a, a list of four to six cards uh, i think it's six um six cards uh from the reserve list that actually have high demand in edh and in casual circles that are much more likely to make you money than most of the junk people have been buying so maybe head over there and take a look rational eh, rational a lot most ridiculous hyper hyperbolic overstated information on how to approach the reserve list i think that's much more interesting (laughs) yeah who wants rational yeah All all right so James, that where can our be, listeners find you? You guys can find me, as usual, on Twitter at MTG Critic, and will, as well via my weekly articles on mtgprice.com. Uh, <laughs> let me try that again. Let me try that again. You guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on mtgprice.com. Okay, and I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday over at MTG Price, and you can find me on the Cartel Aristocrats Monday evenings. And if you like playing Magic, check out Scry.land, uh, find Magic in your area. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Uh, I'd like to shout out to all of the uh, recent Pro Trader signups. Uh, there's been quite the influx lately, and largely on the back of our interactions with our listeners on this podcast, I think. So welcome to the community, and uh, please do let us know if you need any help. Okay. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 82. I enjoyed my time with you this afternoon, James. I will see you next week. Thanks, Travis, and we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.